Discussing world-changing ideas through real conversations. Exploring the potential of technology to solve the most critical challenges facing business, people, and the planet. Coming up... Don't wait for regulation to come find you. Consider that a lot of the good things that you're doing will carry some weight, and that simply showing that you're doing them, as you've probably already had to do when doing your own cybersecurity audits, when doing your cyber insurance underwriting, and so on, that will have some value for regulators who are, you know, concerned about making sure they do their jobs and, and that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. So start by highlighting the good things you do. This is the Real Conversations podcast by Nokia. Here is Michael Hainsworth. Never has a communications service provider felt more in the middle. On one side is the end customer, the individual, an enterprise, industry. On the other, the regulator monitoring how the business is conducted to ensure equity, safety, and security. In today's world of work from home and the rise of the fourth industrial revolution, CSPs have had to dot their own I's and cross their own T's as the attack surface expands. Brom Abramson is a lifelong telecom player, going as far back as the 1980s as the sysop of early FIDO-based email networking systems, to today's role as a principal at 32M, a legal, regulatory, and public policy firm specializing in regulated technology competition. So naturally, Brom requested we run a legal disclaimer to start our conversation. I should note that my comments reflect only my own views and opinions. They do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or understanding of any other person or organization, including any client or any organization on whose behalf I act. Oh, I was hoping you were going to read it like one of those uh, American medical infomercial style disclaimers. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to let me read it and then speed it up in the real version. <laughs> How well have service providers protected their networks during the time of COVID? It's an interesting question because the time of COVID has been one during which the base problem has really shifted, I think. You know, I think on the whole, service providers have done reasonably well, uh, the more nimble and the, the better equipped, I suppose, they are, the better they've done. But um, what COVID has been a time during which, you know, we, I mean, to state the obvious, you know, I'm sitting in my basement, you're sitting uh, somewhere pretty close to where you live, I'll suspect. We decentralized work. It's performed everywhere, right? And so, and I don't think I'm uh, I'm telling much that's new in this, but, um, you know, the, the vectors of attack sort of started to flatten, started to shift. Um in a lot of ways became kind of consumerized, right? Uh, cyber attackers saw the value in soft targets started to spread out along the chain of vulnerabilities, personal devices, user privileges, and so on. Uh, it got more multi-channel probably. We've seen a lot more SMS, uh, you know, uh, phishing, vishing, voice-wise, and so on. Um, I know I answer my phone even less than I did before COVID, which is scary. Um, and so generally, um, you know, all the ransomware that we hear about constantly, uh, it's, a, it's been a really evolving environment, I think, for, for service providers. I think they've done a good job at keeping up, but less and less has been under their traditional sphere of control. So perhaps there's also been the opportunity for service providers to sort of get to know their customers a little bit better and, and expand into different areas and strike up new partnerships that they, uh, they might not have before. Tell me how securing the network is different during times of war versus times of peace, because we're also dealing with what's going on in Europe at the moment, um, and there's a whole new attack vector opportunity 
inherent in that as well. I agree. And it's a tough one because, you know, it, I'll make an analogy in, in politics. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the permanent campaign uh, a lot. You know, they talk about a data-laden universe in which everyone is always campaigning and, and nothing really uh, stops. The cycles have shortened so much that they're, they're sort of uh, eternal. And in some ways, I think it's, it's starting to get like that a little bit with securing a network. Um, you know, it's been constant disruption, especially with COVID. And, and if you look at COVID and then this, this war in Europe, I mean, it's, it's been an interesting sequencing, if anything. Um, but, you know, constant disruption um, and constant evolution. And so in, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, differences uh, between times of war and peace, in some ways, you know, peacetime is almost becoming for cyber. Um, the prelude to war, you know, a time to gather allies, a time to establish good industry practices, data sharing, and all that, all those good things, but at the same time, to be sort of constantly ready for the unexpected to happen, um, unfortunately. But, you know, in, in terms of the flattening out that I mentioned, perhaps it's, it's consistent with that. You know, bad things may happen at any time and do happen at any time, and uh, you just have to be ready for them. You mentioned that in times of peace, that that's the opportunity, among other things, to uh, establish good practices. To be honest, um, they're evolving, but they're still all over the place. <laughs> we're starting to get there, and we're formalizing our practice. One thing, and, and I, I mentioned this, so I'll expand on it a little bit, is is really the idea of gathering allies, of, of working together. You know, I mean, there's nothing new about information and threat sharing, but I think that that started to gather more momentum, or at least I would like to think so, during COVID, when folks really had to sort of uh, adopt the, uh, you know, a, a we're all in this together kind of attitude. So that helps. But at the same time, you know, we're starting also to see the walls between some of the disciplines uh, drop. And that's helpful as well. Much of it by necessity. Um, privacy is a very good example, to be honest. You know, and there's been some recognition that as we formalize our practice, either industry cooperates to apply sort of a privacy lens or it will be imposed from the outside. And, you know, again, when we talk about all these things happening at once, I mean, COVID has unfolded during sort of if, if you did the math, probably a substantial portion of the time now that the GDPR has been in effect in Europe and has in turn uh, sort of led the rest of the world to start to uh, standardize on pretty similar rules as a result of the way that GDPR works and hooks in offshore data processing and everything else. And so you know, we're really starting to see a lot of uh, convergence, I think, between areas that, that were still and probably are still pretty separate. Um, but, you know, we're coming together. In some ways, network management is, is at the heart of that, you know. Um, and when I, when I think about that, I guess I go back to net neutrality, um, which has been this constant debate ever since we've, we've, you know, been mass users of the Internet, really, in the world of, of, of Internet policy. Um, but one area that was always kind of black boxed was network management, the idea that, look, if you're, if you're if you're securing your network, it's okay. Um, and, you know, certainly here in Canada, where I'm sitting 10 to 15 years ago, you know, it was sort of enough to have an internet traffic management framework that said, look, if, if you're, the practice is for the purpose of network security, or if it's employed temporarily to address unpredictable traffic events, it's probably okay. Whereas now, you know, that was in 2009. Now in 2022, work is underway to determine you know, if you're doing blocking for the purposes of cybersecurity, how are we going to define that and nail it down? What does it mean exactly? And how do we hold even those network management activities to guiding principles? You know, so if called on, how do you show that your activities meet definitions for, you know, necessity and accuracy, transparency, privacy, accountability? Concepts like those are trade-offs. Um, 
but working towards sort of guiding principles, I think in some ways is, is becoming the glue that's holding all this together. Obviously we have all kinds of standards and all kinds of um, frameworks and everything else, best practices from all corners of, 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 uh, of, of our different sectors, but it is starting to come together um, in a way that, that sees things more and more formalized and more and more recognized as a, as a distinct set of sort of tied together disciplines. And look, I think that's probably helpful. So then what would you see as, as a guiding principle that we should be talking about at the service provider level? But we aren't. You know, it's interesting, and I, I'm, I'll, I return to it only because I've been quite wrapped up in these debates lately in Canada, but it's, it's, it's quite interesting to see, um, you know, one, one of the questions that we had to answer back to our regulator here, the CRTC, was, are there any cybersecurity activities that can't be held, that can't be held to the five guidelines of being necessary? being accurate, being transparent, being sort of pro-privacy and, and being accountable. Now, none of those are sort of uh, absolutes, right? Necessity doesn't mean that, you know, if you don't do it, you die. Um, it means that it's it's being done exclusively for the purpose of, of cybersecurity and not for any other purpose, right? Not for competitive reasons, not for political reasons and so on. Um, accurate doesn't mean it's perfectly accurate, but it means that you've taken reasonable steps to, to make any impact on legitimate services as minimal as possible. So that you're reducing false positives and, and, and overblocking and so on to the extent that you can, um, that you're taking reasonable steps. Transparent, which means that you're doing some sort of reporting. And obviously we've seen a real rise in recent years in transparency reporting and, and sort of regular delivering to the public of standardized information around what's being blocked, around uh, what network management practices are in place, and generally giving people reassurance that um, those whom they entrust with their network traffic are treating that network traffic responsibly and, and that they have the means to know exactly what's happening. Um, customer privacy. So, you know, again, the idea that you provide the highest level of consumer privacy protection possible under the circumstances, right? You, you're not compromising uh, your ability to protect network traffic, but is what you're doing necessary given privacy rights that individuals have. And finally, accountability. Again, that doesn't mean that carriers and, and service providers are on the hook for everything that happens, that their liability sort of ratchets up exponentially, it means are they treating things in an accountable manner? Are they watching what they're doing? Are they reviewing their blocking systems periodically? Do they know what's happening on their systems? Are they taking the steps to know? Are they just sort of, you know, um, saying, look, we've outsourced that to a vendor and, and we don't need to or care to know? And so those five principles, to be honest, because, again, because I'm sort of sitting and considering these actively, I think they're quite interesting. So it's necessity, accuracy, transparency, privacy, accountability. You mentioned the regulator in Canada, the Canadian Radio Television Telecommunications Commission. Mm -hmm. Service providers have expressed concern that in a, an attack, say a, a denial of, of service attack, false positives could halt as much as 10% of actual good traffic. Yes. And that affects service. Is there a role for regulators in determining how we address this? You know, I want to be careful. I've, I've talked about some of the good ideas that the, uh, that the Canadian regulators had, and, and that's not meant to suggest that regulators should play an outsized role here. I think in all things, you know, to the extent that, that we as an industry can, can come together, um, that's where you want to be. You know, regulators ultimately are there to solve problems that, that are, or should be there only to solve problems that industries and, and that uh, market participants can't solve for themselves. And especially with the internet, which of course is you know a marvelous engine of free speech and everything else, um, that's especially been true. And, and in the past, regulators have been pretty good at you know confining themselves to the bottom 
layers zero to two in in, ISO, in, in OSI terms, I should say. Um, in other words, to the really the, the nitty gritty telecom layers of the network and not getting too into the internet and its various applications, including its basic core protocols like DNS. You know, at the same time, regulators do exist to solve some of those market failures. And so, you know, the, the, the problem that you're identifying around good put and so on um, is really one where you say, look, how is it that we're at the point where we're at? And are there any coordination problems in particular um, that, that, can be, uh, that can be addressed? So, you know, there's probably a whole range of roles that one can uh, contemplate a regulator perhaps usefully playing when it can be shown, uh, you know, that, that really there aren't too many alternatives. But a very basic one might simply be to say that, look, networks serving a certain volume of endpoints should at least do something responsible to keep up with best practice to minimize the false positives you're talking about, right? So maybe that looks like minimum network security obligations on networks. And that's something I understand that we're starting to see discussion of, especially in the UK, in Canada now as well, with some proposed uh, new legislation, um, which you know would give way to regulations, which haven't been written, so we're a ways away. But um, you know, it's almost like a basic hygiene check. And so, if if nothing else, you might say, look, or or to switch metaphors for a second, um, if you're going to be a network of a certain size on on which a certain number of people depend, you're driving a big bus. We need to make sure that you have your license. Right. You've told me in the past that we're seeing an explosion of internet regulation worldwide that doesn't just regulate the internet, yeah. but the layers and the activities. How so? And, and what does this mean for telcos specifically? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because we see so much discussion now about internet regulation. And it's true. We, there is a lot of it being discussed. And it's also true. Uh, we should be wary and be careful about it. Overregulation can be a knee-jerk reaction sometimes and, and is often not the correct uh, response. It is not a helpful response. But that said, I think when we talk about internet regula regulation, it's, it's often helpful to sort of pin down what are we talking about when we talk about that. Um, you know, certainly, you know, we've seen a lot of activity around sort of speech regulation, around online harms, around news financing, that sort of thing. We're seeing more and more around um, regulating different markets that have existed off the internet and are moving onto the internet, whether it's video, whether it's, uh, and that's, you know, uh, uh, the idea of regulating big online video distributors, whether it's regulating digital currency markets, um, you know, and all those things. But I guess, you know, there's almost two sides to this. It's what's the problem we're trying to solve. And a lot of the time, these are real world issues that we've seen in the past and that are now moving onto the internet. And other times, these are things that are native to the internet. And, you know, certainly social networks are things that we didn't much see in the real world. But on the other hand, it's also about what are the steps we're taking and which layer of the internet are we addressing in order to try and address these issues. And so, you know, it's one thing to say that, look, um, I don't know, to take a, a real world example, um, uh, pirated hockey games should be blocked, right? Or should be, should be uh, addressed in some way so that you know, those who pay big bucks for those rights shouldn't see those rights pirated. And that's something we've seen before the courts in Canada recently. But it's another to say, okay, so what is the least harmful way to address that, right? Um, you know, first of all, is that an internet problem per se? In other words, how are people, well, to take one example, um, how are people paying for this? And if we tried to go after the, the financial intermediaries before we go uh, uh, after the internet-based intermediaries, then a second step is, okay, if it's happening on the internet, what do we mean? In other words, are we going after um, the hosts? Are we going after the people who are providing 
the DNS that allows the the, 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 the DNS entries that allows it you know to be easy for users to find the right place to find these these websites and so on. Because if the IP address is hopping around constantly, it's probably less easy for them. Um, you know, are we going after? And ultimately, are we going after the um, the actual internet, the, the actual network layer access uh, to these at the consumer side as well, which is where we've seen in Canada recent uh, uh, court decisions uh, locating the blocking. And I guess in general, one of the things that we're um, well, one of the things that that may get confused at times is what is the difference between those different applications? What, the dif- what is the difference between those different layers? And, and are we careful in distinguishing between them when we make those rules? And so again, when we want to go after copyright infringement, if we should go after copyright infringement in, in a given circumstance, um, you know, are we careful about saying, look, we're going to take the least harmful approach possible by affecting as few endpoints as we need to? Um, you know, are we, are we going to rely on this case, which was about, I don't know, Google delisting results from its search engine, which is very different, you know, at one layer than uh, relying as a precedent on, um, you know, a, a, a telco blocking a, a given range of IP addresses over a period of time. How are those things different and who needs to know about that? In other words, you know, do courts need to understand those differences? Do regulators need to provide information about those differences? So the courts can be better informed. You know, how, how is this supposed to work? What we're quickly seeing as everything sort of gets digitized and and swallowed up in a way by the internet, um, simply treating the internet as one big under, undifferentiated thing, I think is less and less helpful. And so, as we talk about internet regulation, and I know I'm off on a frolic here, but um, you know, it, it really starts to get to the point where we need to really slice into that and delaminate uh, the different layers and, and really zero in on uh, what it is we're talking about exactly. Well, then how does the telco layer avoid being stuck in the middle, being caught in the middle, and being the one that ends up having to be the police officer for whatever the crime may be? It's a very good question um, because in practice, that's what's happening, right? We see more and more, we're, we're seeing more and more obligations loaded onto uh, telcos, whether it's in terms of, you know, performing copyright enforcement, whether it's, uh, working with law enforcement, uh, you know, to, to assist in all manner of cybercrime, whether it's enforcing age related restrictions. Um, it's, it's really becoming qu- quite detailed and the level of obligation and responsibility and liability, um, is ratcheting upwards. You know, telcos are in a privileged and a unique position with sort of the obligatory points of passage for everyone's network traffic. And so they occupy sort of a high trust role. Um, on the one hand, they are relied on increasingly uh, by law um, to assist in various sort of legal functions. And on the other hand, they're also relied on by end users as the trusted agents for their private network traffic. And that's a very high onus in terms of Uh, people's privacy rights and so as well as their security and and all the other things that you might imagine so for telcos i think a lot of this lies in in recognizing that they have an interest in in that delamination in that recognition of the different sorts of role that different actors on the internet will play and in making it clear that they are not the only actors on the internet and are often the best you know are, are often best considered as actors of last resort in other words look if we're getting to the network layer, have we looked at all the other sort of higher layer options first, or have we you know, looked at the different solutions that are closer to the source of the problem first and so on? Um, 
And look, sure, we need to play our part, but has that part been looked at carefully in the context of the whole so that we're always, you know, doing the, the, the least amount of intrusion possible and are, are really playing a, you know, adopting a least harm approach? Or are we sort of relying on the easiest, bluntest, heaviest tool at hand because it's, it's, it's the one that we look to most naturally? Um, so there's a real, you know, in a lot of ways, incentive, I think, for telcos to begin to recognize that they're part of, well, not just to recognize, because I think telcos know this, but to help others recognize that they're part of a fairly complex ecosystem. And they're just one part of it, if the most visible part, because at the end of the day, the ISP is who we pay our money to to access the internet. Um, and to say, look, there, there's a lot going on here. Uh, we want to play our fair role. But at the same time, let's understand the full ecosystem and let's do no more harm than possible, especially when it comes to acting on, on real harms or real areas of concern, because yeah, this might be the most effective, but the, the easiest, that is to say, but it might not be uh, the most effective place to start. After this podcast, learn more about this and other insightful topics by going to nokia.com slash thought leadership. There you'll find additional information linked to today's podcast. Since you're uh, located in uh, a basement in Canada, let's <laughs> sort of sort of a, a extend upon y your expertise in that area that, that frankly applies no matter where you are in the world. Mm -hmm. But in recent engagements with the Canadian government, arguing for a less telco-centric approach to dealing with botnets, we heard from some operators that they found themselves hampered by lacking the right kind of detailed threat data to reinforce their case. What are your thoughts on sharing of threat intelligence data among operators to make their networks and the internet as a whole more secure and make a sort of a common case in front of a regulator? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, and I think it's, it's actually, you know, targeted to exactly the right level um, in terms of where we're at right now, because, you know, where this will go from a regulatory standpoint is, is still pretty open. As I was saying before, I think, you know, we see a lot of practices starting to coalesce, but we're still all over the place. You know, I guess I would say that Acting responsibly, taking a, a very active role um, in, first of all, auditing one's own, one's own practices and in understanding what best practices are, how you stack up, stack up against them, um, in engaging with the surrounding context, um, and in sort of you know, developing a, a bit of a trusted environment in which, I, in which telcos can uh, cooperate with one another identify best practices in a uh, uh, in, in ways that are of course consonant with um, all of their obligations uh, that are careful not to you know achieve anti-competitive effects that are not for commercial purposes but are truly about um, really protecting uh, end users and showing that you are properly cooperating with opportunities to share threats um, to work with different certs and different, you know, information sharing analysis centers, organizations, automated indicator sharing, you know, all those, all those good things. And, and we have that set up now by country, by industry, by community. Um, you know, we have various platforms for malware information sharing and so on. And so it's a question of, of on the one hand, really showing that once you're a, a network of a certain size, in particular, once, once you have the capacity that you're engaging proactively, um, with these things, that you are engaging with your peers in a way that is that is honest and, and fair and, and transparent, um, and probably on the other hand, that you are doing so in ways that are consonant with uh, the guiding principles I spoke about earlier. So again, as I say, 
Um, there's probably a whole debate to be had about what those guiding principles should be, but I think for now, necessity, accuracy, transparency, privacy, accountability are not bad places to start. And so, you know, if somebody were to go forth and say, look, let's take a look at what you're doing. Um, are you sort of complying with these different guiding principles? Can you show that you understand what, what's happening on your network, that you are doing things in, as, in, as, as in the least intrusive way possible, that you're providing some transparency, you know, that you're doing your best to reduce false positives and, and, and generally promote accuracy and that you're blocking uh, to the extent necessary because it really is for cybersecurity. Um, and then you sort of mark those to market by showing that you're doing uh, what is best practice in the industry. Maybe you've also, you've already got your SOC 2 type 1 done and you're rolling with your annual SOC 2 type 2s. Maybe you're, you're you know, showing that you're meeting ISO and NIST standards. Um, you know, all, all, the, all the usual good things that I think uh, people are starting to build in if they haven't already into their cybersecurity programs and certainly that most responsible large institutions procurement programs will require of you if you're a carrier these days. Um, you know, but really put, put all those things together and say, look, privacy in one corner, law enforcement in another corner, uh, cybersecurity in yet another corner, that, that's not going to fly long term. So how do we put those things together? And make sure that you know when we get out there in the industry and we talk about what we're doing, we can show that we're engaging and that we're reconciling uh, all those different disciplines. TikTok is often seen as the poster boy for national security concerns. Is it possible to balance net neutrality with the obligations to protect national interests without dragging the CSP into the fight? Yeah, it's a good question. And look, it really goes back to, um, I think, what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, start with the different layers of the network and start with the different locations at which the harm is, if any, obviously, is is taking place, right? And so, you know, when we talk about TikTok, look, it's a it's an application. It's a it's a complex application. It's It's got a, a, the user-ended application on the one hand. There's all kinds of things happening all over the network and things talking to one another. But at the end of the day, um, you know, what is the specific concern that we're trying to address? And then how do we go there? And, and TikTok's a good example. I mean, it really marries a lot of different concerns and some of them are, are fairly non-technical and some of them really do go, do go to those sort of online harms issues and, 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 you know, start with engaging with TikTok directly. And I must say TikTok, you know, has engaged in its corner with different governments and so on. And that's probably helpful, if nothing else, as a starting, uh, as a starting measure. Then you simply walk down the chain and you say, look, for the specific harms we're trying to address, what is the least intrusive way to do so? Um, if it eventually gets to the point where we, where we need to work with carriers themselves, and this is almost at the demand side of things, um, and, unless we're talking about network suppliers to TikTok itself, um, then, you know, then we get there. But at least we've done so in a way that's well-measured, that's well-reasoned, that's well-structured, in a way that's administratively fair and proportionate, and that really respects these, these guiding principles that I've talked about, right? In other words, you know, uh, what is the specific harm we're trying to address? And when there are multiple harms, then we address each of them in turn. And to really look at the, the remediating plan that we have for each of them um, uh, in that way. So for a telco operator that is concerned about the implications of regulation by any governing body uh, and the application of it on their network, mm -hmm. what would be the key takeaway for you that you would want them to have after listening to this conversation? Don't wait for regulation to come find you. I mean, I, I don't think it's a complicated one and I don't think it's a new one, but certainly, you know, if you're, if you're a carrier, you're already engaged. If, 
or a carrier of any of any uh, proportion, you're already engaged in all kinds of cybersecurity activities, as you should be and as you need to be, because your network won't work without them. Um, consider that a lot of the good things that you're doing will carry some weight, and that simply showing that you're doing them, as you've probably already had to do when doing your own cybersecurity audits, when doing your cyber insurance underwriting, and so on, um, that will have some value for regulators who are, you know, concerned about making sure they do their jobs and, and that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. So start by highlighting the good things you do. Um, and then as you do so, make sure that you, you know, sort of continue to audit them for regulatory risk as well, meaning is what we're doing constant with the kinds of guiding principles that a regulator would like to see applied? Um, are we doing things in a way that is, that is well uh, well, that is on board with the other disciplines that intersect with cybersecurity, the ones I've been talking about, privacy and law enforcement relations and all those good things. Um, and do we have the means to talk about it in a sort of centralized and, and unified way that makes sense and that, uh, that really spins out a narrative that is accurate, that is fair, and that regulators will appreciate having heard about? Because the more that uh, the carriers who are already doing these things can explain what they're doing, I think the more reassurance in many cases regulators will have. Building a future that's productive, sustainable and inclusive in a world that acts together. Discover how by visiting nokia.com slash thought leadership.
regulators ultimately are there to solve problems that that are, or should be there only to solve problems that industries and, and that uh, market participants can't solve for themselves. And especially with the internet, which of course is you know a marvelous engine of free speech and everything else, um, that's especially been true. And, and in the past, regulators have been pretty good at you know confining themselves to the bottom layer zero to two in in ISO in, in OSI terms, I should say. Um, in other words, to the really the the nitty gritty telecom layers of the network, and not getting too into the internet and its various applications, including its basic core protocols like DNS. Regulators ultimately are there to solve problems that, that are, or should be there only to solve problems that industries and, and that uh, market participants can't solve for themselves. And especially with the internet, which of course is you know a marvelous engine of free speech and everything else, um, that's especially been true. And, and in the past, regulators have been pretty good at you know confining themselves to the bottom layer zero to two in, in ISO in, in OSI terms, I should say. Um, in other words, to the really the, the nitty gritty telecom layers of the network. And not getting too into the internet and its various applications, including its basic core protocols like DNS. Don't wait for regulation to come find you. I mean, I, I don't think it's a complicated one, and I don't think it's a new one. But certainly, you know, if you're if you're a carrier, you're already engaged. If or a carrier of any of any uh, proportion, you're already engaged in all kinds of cybersecurity activities, as you should be, and as you need to be, because your network won't work without them. Um, consider that a lot of the good things that you're doing will carry some weight. And that simply showing that you're doing them, as you've probably already had to do when doing your own cybersecurity audits, when doing your cyber insurance underwriting, 
and so on. Um, that will have some value for regulators who are, you know, concerned about making sure they do their jobs and, and that all 